0: Sponsored by Expressway. With MyExpressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 15, where I meet crime journalist Paul Williams. Paul has a fascinating life looking all too closely at some of modern Ireland's nastiest characters. You can check out previous episodes where I meet people like Dermot Bannon, Teresa Mannion, George Hook, Ivan Yates, Nuala Carey and others. Names you'll know and some you won't have met yet. It's all there on SeniorTimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner, and you can email me at conorfaulkner at gmail.com. But now it's Paul Williams. We chat about his career and about how the criminal world has changed. From his memories of standing beside the car looking in at Veronica Gearan's murdered body, to the Criminal Assets Bureau, the Garthy, and the Kinnahan gang, Paul has been our witness and has lived uncomfortably close to the front line. He popped around to me on a sunny afternoon, and we had a chat over a coffee. Let's go and meet him. Paul Williams, it is wonderful to see you. Thank you very much for dropping around. It is wonderful to see you too, Connor. Um. This is the probably the inaugural podcast from my bat cave. I hope. I hope you enjoy the back I cave. do. Know what I have to say, it's immensely uh, impressive. I
1: have a bat- a man cave myself, but it's a very cheap one I bought when I bought my house about seventeen years ago. And I also am hugely impressed to, to hear that Dermot Bannon was in your house, in he your was. man cave, and has no no suggestions for refurbishment of any kind. Yes, well done.
0: Absolutely, and uh, uh, you know he-, he he had to say that eventually, um, and then I let him go, um. But yeah, I'm delighted with it so um mm-hmm. thank you for dropping around we're neighbors of course because yes, you're running your like up the, the road in Rathfarnham. Yeah. we're in Line.
1: I here. know where you live and you know where I live. Yeah there I you go. I an intimidating thing one time but not anymore. Well you <laughs> see <laughs> maybe now
0: I'm not in safe corporate land of the AA I'll have to live life looking over my shoulder. <laughs> um But come here there's a million things we could get into with you Um but I know you're a Leitrim man originally. Um, Leitrim man i very proud. It's still a very, Le- Still a man. Originally a and yeah. currently. <laughs> Oh, very good, um, and actually, I've a Leitrim connection myself. My father's from Sligo, my mother's from Leitrim, but my father's name is Faulkner, obviously. Oh, there's not Faulkners for a load of Faulkners in Leitrim, yeah, in Clune, around just out in South Leitrim, yeah, correct North, indeed. In well, I think my grandfather or great grandfather was. Uh, born and raised there or somewhere near Drummer or somewhere like that. That's it, that's the area. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he moved from there then to Enniscone in Sligo to be a primary school teacher and then that's then when... So the that explains the good DNA and kind of fun, it, does, yes. it does, it does. The I'm source of the impressed. outbreak has been traced to, to Leitrim, uh, but it's spread <clears> all over the world. Actually, you see, you come across more Falklands, I don't have a huge extended family, but you come across more Falklands in America than you do... Um, in Ireland, funnily enough, uh, they all probably took the took emigrated. Boat. Boat. Yeah, like Leitrim. Yeah, yeah. Leitrim being such a, a prosperous place, put <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. sticks and them. go to the states. We were good
1: at so, exporting people.
0: Aye, oh, yeah, we were. So that's where you grew up, and yeah. we're roughly similar vintage to ourselves, uh, to to myself. Um, and you know we met each other in the pub the other week. We and uh, you've a couple, we've met a few times. You told me a couple of things. You told me that you crashed your mother's car. Was your, your earliest, nearly earliest It nearly all
1: ended before it began. Uh, it, it's also it, it it was an episode in my life that was was really it put me on the road and you, yeah. you, you were talking teenager, about having a I presume. A I, oh I was 17 at the 17, time but yeah. it, it, you know when you talk about it, I'm a criminologist as well so we talk about primary deviance my act of primary deviance was what I did in, in Leitrim in 1983 <clears throat> uh, and basically what I did one one day I started I was always driving we were in the drilling yeah. business and I was driving drilling rigs when I was 8 and 10 we you know right. on tracks and I was mad into driving my mum bought a brand new Renault 18 which was this Sexy car at the yeah. time, and uh, she let me drive at the odd time, but I had no insurance, no license. So one night I got drunk uh, yeah. after doing my leave insert uh, in an act of absolute madness, yeah. which I see happening all the time still. And um, I took my mother's car, which she didn't know, and I drove it around Balma More like a lunatic. and I ended up crashing through a telegraph pole, wrote off the car, nearly wrote myself off. And um, the. Was there the, anybody else in the car? There was a Frenchman in the said. car, yeah. Luckily, they all came out unscathed, but i I got yeah. a, a whack on the head, and uh, the local guardie conspired with my father they said and the, the, it was it was brilliant what they did in the sense that they said we will put manners in this at the bollocks. yeah and um they as a as a result of it, the fact i remember I was in the the reserves the military reserves and I spent fifteen years with them, and mm. um, the patrol we were close to the borders, you know, so the patrol yeah. was coming back to Longford barracks. And I was very well known in for barracks, because to do a lot of duties up there. And uh, somebody said, they pulled up and they saw this car. Buried and they said, there's a young Williams from out the road there. Is doing that. And the boys went back to the barracks and said, young Williams has been killed. <laughs> um, uh, I was a private at the time, has been killed. And uh, it was such a bad accident. But you know, hmm. uh, it, it was a lesson. It was a shameful thing to do. It was a horrendous thing to do. But you know what? I'm
0: 57 now. It's a relatively cheap lesson in this in the grand scheme of not things. Not to my mother, which she well, let God me forget I, it, but she I had know. to buy a brand new car. But, 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 but I mean, it is, that is the archetypal, because you are, you're a 17-year-old male. And that's not a character fault. It's just, it is in the nature of young Madness. males to I do, do that thing. thing. Yeah. Connor.
1: every time, as I say, I'm 57 now, I hear about young men being killed. Yeah. And it's always late at night. There's more than likely always drinking bottles. Now, of course, single day in accident,
0: car full of mates. And yeah. you
1: see, and I've met so many families through the years who lost kids. And then when I came to Dublin first, you had this awful so called joyriding, which was not joyriding, yeah. it was kill, murder driving. And I, I think that coloured my view. And it, I, I always, it's in the back of my mind, and people used to joke about it, but it, it wasn't a joke. It was a horrendous thing I did. I was very ashamed of it. But it did it, it teach me a very major lesson. Yeah. But every time I hear about that happening to families, and my dad that night, I'll never forget, he yeah. was going crazy. He hit me a box on the nose after I was brought home from the doctors by my mess and <laughs> mate. And the two of them went to fight. Because he, he said, I'm going to kill Jonesy. They call me Jonesy. I'm going to kill the little bastard. And when my dad that night went out with my sister to look mm-hmm. at the car, he changed his... It just completely transformed. He yeah. just came out and he said, they're lucky to be alive. Yeah. And he never mentioned the car again. My mother never let me forget. Yeah. But the thing was... He Life was a lesson for you. Oh, it was. Yeah. It's... It, it resonates with me every time I hear about kids, young people, inactive men. So mostly young males. Mostly young males. And yeah. It's, it's so many families
0: that act of madness.
1: You know, you hear about it nearly every week, and you in, think it, it, what it does to families. It's, like it's, in,
0: it's in the nature of the human condition. You know, I say young males are are reckless, they're risk takers. It can look like a character fault, but you know, much of human progress is made by people with that mindset. It's immaturity, it's, immaturity. Immaturity. it's testosterone, it's. Yeah, all of that. Um, so, it's it, 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 that was an early uh, life changing event, but how, what brought you then to journalism? Because, I mean, obviously you're known for crime journalism. I I best known journalist in Ireland for that for, for many, many years. But what was the path that took you there? Was it a journalist first or were you? No, you I, I I a guy was college. a crime that
1: interested you? What I what I did was um, I was I had a bit of a checkered career in school as well. It was <laughs> a little bit wild. And that's why I suppose when I studied criminology, I realized just how wild I had been and I couldn't st- actually write go, paper we'll think we'll go with
0: little bastard to your father's suspicion. <laughs> I'm getting bastard. good mental little bad, little Love the Mad little bastard.
1: bastard. And the people at Baltimore still say that. But yeah. um, I, I had been in boarding school for a year. Um and Where my family, you in boarding school? In st. Pat's in Cavan. Oh, okay. Uh, and I hated it. It was a horrendous thing to do to any child at 13 years of age put him into a boarding school. And my family had a very successful drilling business in Carrigallon, which was 10 miles from Ballinamore, where I lived. And uh, when I came out of um, uh, boarding school, I didn't want to go back and I was getting in trouble. And my uncle, who was the patriarch of the family, and I was very, very close to him, he was the guy, he had no kids, but he had groomed me to be the next owner or, or yeah. Williams Brothers, we were in the rock drilling business, a tough business yeah, and, yeah. and a hard business and I, I learned, a, I, I, it made a hard man out of me when I was very young but uh, he died suddenly, he was only 52 or three uh, and that broke my heart and then my granny died shortly after that and then the family business, it, it just went a different direction and then I went to sco- back to school in Ballinmore, and I, I, I never settled and I was always getting in trouble and I was expelled out of there ultimately after mm. two and a half years. And then I spent about six months, seven months um, doing nothing, bagging turf, doing things like that and going for apprenticeships, uh, discovering at one stage well, I matured enough and my parents were, were, were strong enough in my life and, and, and f- helpful enough and very, God bless them, they were, yeah. they were great Are parents, They both but, gone, Paul. Yeah, they are both gone, yeah. Right. And um, they were always encouraging. My dad said, look... We give you one last chance. We can get you into the school in Carrigallon, the tech in Carrigallon, mm. which is where the Williams seat, that's where my family are from. And we can talk to the principal. He's a friend of the family, but it'd be your last chance. But what convinced me that I would go ahead and go to, back to school after I was going to, uh, for an mechan- apprenticeship with ESB and another one with ANCO and to discover that it looked like a university degree because there was so much you know, the yeah. prospectus. And I said, I'll give it another shot. So in that period of time, I became very, very interested in journalism. I became, particularly was swooned by, um, there was a program called World in Action, you may ah, remember. yeah, yeah, And it yeah. was like the prequel, it was a really, it was, a, for the time, it was really impressive mm. TV. It was really good investigative yeah. TV, way ahead of Panorama or whatever. And certainly way ahead of anything we had in Ireland. And uh, I said, I want to do that. I, I, very what I thought it was, I want to expose things. I want to tell people stories that they don't know. So I became very interested in journalism. I had a brilliant, brilliant teacher, uh, well, lots of brilliant teachers in Carrigallon, uh, and it, they. my, my the English teacher was Eamon uh, Daly, who thank God is right. still alive from Drumshambo, brilliant man. He he inspired me. Like he did, Seamus uh, O'Rourke is a neighbour of mine, you know the right. famous Seamus O'Rourke, and Seamus O'Rourke always talks about Eamon Daly as well. Ah,
0: very good. Cool. Eamon
1: encouraged me, I did very well in English so, things, and other uh, things, I got into college out
0: of it then. Yeah. I got into journalism. So, so college and then journalism uh, up to Dublin. Is that? Uh, I came to start on a local beat. I, I came to Dublin in um,
1: to do to to do study in the School of Journalism and Rock Minds. Yeah, Half College of Commerce there. I got an offer a job. Um, I went to the Longford News first as on a working placement, then the and the Leitrim Observer offered me a job. I worked with them for six months. Went back then when a full-time job came to, to me. John Dunne was a great listener of oh, uh, yeah. the podcast. He was. With, I was with him the other night. He was my first news editor, and I said I always want to work with him, and now he's still my close, close friend and, oh, and a mentor. But and, and then I worked in the Longford News for a couple of years, and then the job came up in the Sunday World. It was. It was. was they were finding yeah. two young reporters, myself and Cathy Kelly, oh, were closely right. together. And, what uh, date was that? All. I, I joined in February of 1987. I joined the, wow, uh, the okay. Sunday World, yeah, and uh, it took off after that. And, and when I came into the Sunday World, uh, I came into a, I, I was always very interested in military stuff, obviously, so yeah. I spent 15 years with the with the FC and the reserves, and I didn't leave them till the mid 90s. 90s, but um, I was also interested in crime, it, the sexy mm. stuff, I suppose, like i mean, yeah. the fellas. But when I came in in 1987, I had a great news editor of the Sunday work called Sean Boyne. And Sean Boyne encouraged me into
0: crime. But then it was a crime-rich environment. That's well, yeah, yeah, You had a general going. You had know, the, 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 okay. Because, I, 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 like, I've been living in Dublin all my life. I'm, what, about 53 now? And we lived in Ranelagh and various different places. And uh, so my own memory is overlapping that of what Dublin was like in the 80s. Um, and in a sense, you know, the crime, if you think about the 80s and 70s, it was armed gangs, shotgun holding up, you know, right. the, the, the book he's taking, the, See, the, age, of the age of the black, armed. we call it. Yeah, the age of the black. You could rob the <clears> cash, <throat> physically rob bags of cash uh, with violence I and mean, it nearly the first time I saw guns on a, in the hands of criminals in Ireland. Uh, and then the drugs and Larry Dunn and that kind of horrible chapter. Um, uh, uh, but it, it, it's, a, I don't know, is it a bit like nine eleven For me, there, there's a watershed. You could only talk about crime in Ireland pre-Veronica Guerin and post-Veronica Guerin. Mm, absolutely. Um, now, uh, where, where were you vis-a-vis, Veronica? Were you sort of, were you contemporaries? We were contemporaries, we were friends, and also we were
1: competitors. Um, yeah. She was in Sunday Indo, I was in the Sunday World, and she suddenly blasted onto the scene around 1994, around the time that I got new management for the Sunday World, mm. we got new management, and they really emphasized the crime. And I'd been working as a crime reporter right from 87 on, and I'd studied criminology for the first time around that time. And uh, so <clears throat> we were competitors and uh, I got to know her quite well mm. over a short period of time and she was almost very gracious in <laughs> our com- competition but I do remember the day that Veronica was murdered and I was in... Um, it's in one of those square. where were you moments. Yeah, it really is. It is, yeah. it is, it is yeah. our JFK moment. And yeah. I had, <clears throat> but I was in um, I was in the Southern world and I, there was one that Derek Dunn the notorious Maradona he used to be called he's dead now he was shot dead like the all do, yeah. a few years later. But he, he was he had a trial going on in Liverpool and I actually remember saying to the other look, I'm going to get uh, Rosita uh, who was our PA to book me a flight. I'm going to fly over to Liverpool maybe tomorrow and have look at this trial. Gearing to be over there, we might have a bit of crack, not a bit of crack. Out, yeah, you know. And the next thing, my phone rang, and it was a close friend of mine who I was actually he's still a very close friend of mine, a detective who had been minding my fam, me and my family on and off from the early nineties, and we started getting police protection. And uh, he said, <clears throat> he said, uh, your mate is in trouble again, mm. and I said, who oh, for again? Because he had met her with me at one stage on another occasion and uh, she hadn't been very nice to him and he always remembered her <laughs> and um, she, he
0: said um, she was a tough cookie There's a tendency to tough. sort of you, 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 well almost literally eulogise mm. uh, people because they have passed and she was heroic in many many ways she, she, but she was an abrasive enough person I think she? She, she could be very abrasive yeah. in fact I reckon you know
1: in a lot of ways it's an awful tragedy that we lost her but she would have gone ahead she would have ended up you would have been in lots of manies of war I'd say no more to myself yeah. huh? if I had if I'd killed, I would, have, I would have missed it. But um, so I, he said to me, "Look, sh- they're after having another go at her. And I said, "Jesus, well, did the shoot?" Her? And he said, "Yeah." And I goes, "Was well, she all yeah. right?" And he says, "No." And then I remember chilling. I said, "You had to chill down my spine." All these years later, and he, he said, "He said, I said, Jesus, don't tell me she's dead." Jesus, and he says, yeah. she's dead. He says, "I said, fuck off, <laughs> This is nothing." <laughs> no, and then he said, "I'm standing, looking at her." And it, it, I just went into a sort of a daze and I hopped into my car, mm-hmm. I had a blue Corolla, they used to call it the Phantom Police Car, and I drove very, very fast, mm-hmm. but very skillfully that day. She's had a little change now. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I got out to As the well long was, road to Newlands yeah. Cross and I got up there through Bellymount Mount and I drove like a police car would drive in an emergency. And I just, the phone started ringing in the car and it was cop after cop at the car, Jeez, did you hear what just happened? Wow. I got to the scene, I was the first journalist at the scene and a guard came up to me and said, Jesus, we're sorry, Paul. And it was one of those strange situations. I just walked over to the car and nobody stopped me yeah. um, because there was total shock as well. Calibra was there, as was that famous Yeah, yeah. Moment. And, and, and I saw her in the car and Jesus. I saw her slumped over and, and that image Burned into my mind that will never ever go away.
0: Sponsored by Expressway. With my Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.
1: Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doru. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying
0: this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. Do you know, if a lot of people felt that quite closely, uh, in a you know, fun, funny sort of way, uh, but you were genuinely close in all sorts of ways, because you know, there must have been a bit of you thinking there, but for the grace of God. The last, One time, of she things wrote,
1: I... the last time she contacted me,
0: oh, she sent me
1: a Christmas card, the previous Christmas and I had just, uh, I, I was dealing with John Trainer who died yeah. last year, and John Trainer was her source. Mm. And he had caused problems between her and I. Now I was much more professional at dealing, for only if I wasn't a trained journalist, but I was professional at dealing with, with informants mm. and snouts, because you don't let them get up on your back. And um, she warned me, she said, you've got to be careful, the trainer. And he, she said, he's a, he's a double-crossing bastard. Yeah. And he was ultimately responsible for Veronica being shot in the leg in January of 19, uh, 1995 yeah. uh, at that time. And she and I wrote a book about this last yeah. year again about Gilligan. but I, I, I included that part, which I could never understand and still can't understand, how she continued to talk to him. Because I believe she absolutely did suspect him at that stage. And the minute I stood there, I said to the guards, you know who did this. This yeah. is Gilligan. This is Trainer." And then I got sick on the side of the road because it wasn't, I it was probably more cowardice, I think I tried to organize to, to wow. explain it because suddenly, I've been getting police protection, but you never ever thought they would go across the way. Now, the, the shooting of Veronica was a horrendous, that shooting yeah. in the leg was a horrendous incident, but you think that's an
0: isolated incident never happen again. And I was gonna ask you about just the, the day-to-day reality of having police protection because it's a phrase everybody knows um but you know the, the former Taoiseach Liam Cosgrave lived uh, yeah, around the corner they're developing, yeah. they're, they're developing the site mm-hmm. into uh, apartments now Um but for, as a former Taoiseach you know there was always this literally a sleepy guard I like my and, and if you imagine somebody like Victor the assassin or some incredible ninja um, you know the, so what does police protection literally mean I mean it's, is it well, like the feds in the movies where they're in your driveway in your garden in your bedroom well, or is it just they check in on you periodically well, well what they used to do it start in the early 90s with <clears throat> regular attention
1: police cars driving past the house at night and around the back of the house I lived up in Walkinstown at the time in 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 Temple Manor and uh, so they would they would keep an eye on you there and they would often maybe bring me home and stuff like that and and uh, so we got to know them very, very well because there was a few times the generals' men wanted to burn my house down, and um, then, if it, 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 you know, things went quiet for a number of years, and then in two thousand and three they went mad. They were going to kill me in two thousand and three. Mm. Um, like I was being warned on a regular basis that the guys listen, you're
0: going to be killed. It wasn't you're and going to be shot at, at I, I, or I, hurt. Yeah. It's going to be killed. So guards paid closer. Were Irish criminals at that time um, becoming more violent? I mean, I'm thinking of people like. The, the Westies crime gang and all when that. They, the they seem the to get... M- yeah, no. They, they fill the
1: void left by John Gilligan's yeah. gang when they were routed and put out of the business in 1996, 97. And these
0: these violent gangs have a sort of a half-life of maybe five years where you're ki- right. where you're king rat and the money is pouring in. Um, but then, you know, eventually it, it, it ends but badly. It, off the the, the boom in organized
1: crime came in the late 90s when people in Ireland discovered cocaine. And it's the respectable so-called middle classes in Ireland who are responsible for a, a billion-plus industry. I mean, Remember a certain and well-known, orders.
0: well-known journalist and media anchor who's still podcasting himself these days. He probably wouldn't mind me saying, um, uh, well, he was quoted as saying, "You can't get good cocaine in this Baby, town. yeah, baby. You know is, yeah. um, So there was that era, and of course, this was this was Tiger One, oh, booming yeah, Ireland, Tiger, yeah. uh, money to fling around for cocaine and everything like it. And the drugs gangs getting more violent and more...
1: There a whole group of them that came after me that time. They seemed to pool their resources and there was a man apparently gathered to do's. I was supposed to go to a hotel and exchange... Were you on we so a party. list somewhere? They, they decided to would kill me. Uh, the guards were telling me this. But this went on for months and then what happened was I think the, the guards were staying on top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they decided to go towards harassing me and then they, pushed, they, they destroyed my car with acid uh, one night and then there was fire engines being called to my home and then there was other incidents that the guards had prevented happening. Yeah. Um that they hadn't been But you could
0: be harassed and intimidated. Um so. but then, it, they, put, then, then your... they put a hoax
1: bomb at my home then a very, and all my neighbors in on my road were were evacuated. And then it got to a stage where the management was Sunday where I met Michael who was then the justice minister and said, Listen, you're telling us our man's gonna get killed. We have a right and he still wants to do his job and he's not going to stop doing his job and we have a right as the media to report what we report and what the hell is going to go on in this country. So what they did was- Who was the minister at the time? Michael McDougall. Yeah, so then gone. they put 24, it, I was put into the equivalent of witness protection in the sense that <clears throat> at my home, I a semi-detached house at the time, in front garden was a police horse with 24, 24 hour 365 guard there. Uh, armed guard at night, uniform cop during the day and then two bodyguards from special branch lived with me for just wow. over two years. They came met me in the mornings wherever I went. I always had in my rear view mirror a patrol car, an unmarked wow. car with two armed guys. And they that intensive protection stayed for two years. And then the police at my home stayed for a total of 13 years. And wow. uh, I, I had the same what cabin as 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 the former T shirt cat outside his home. Um, and it, it, these things, this was imposed, I right?
0: like, didn't go asking for it, but
1: yeah. they said this is the only thing we well, can do.
0: Irish society did not want another Veronica Gearan. I mean, one of the things that came out of it was the Criminal Assets Bureau, um, which Brilliant innovation and yeah. copied all over the world now. Absolutely. I mean, it copied all over the world, I mean, and as is typical with, you read British news coverage, it's where they invented it. Um, but it was a it was a terrific model here, and um, you've done TV documentaries on Coronel. I know you know the guys well. You 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 have a very good relationship over the years with uh, with the guards. In fact, if there's a criticism of Paul Williams gets flung around the place, um, you're too close to the guards. You're too Just close complete, to the guards. That and you can be an Egypt in the pub. Uh, you know, because uh, you and I have both been Egypt say Egyptians in the same pub at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you like a bit of crack and all that. There's not you know too many sharp corners to you. Um, but as I say, if there's a journalistic criticism, it's he's too close to the But cards. you always had to work out where that came from. And it
1: was come from an element uh, basically of, you know, people, shall we say in certain political circles, uh, people who wanted to do you down, who have always been in the background. And it was because on a few occasions I stood up for them and I, said, and I would still stand up for the good guys in the sense that ultimately the only way you can take on organized crime are people who are terrorizing the public, like what they did in Limerick, what they've done in Dublin, what the Kinnhans and the Hutches mm. do, is that the only way they can be taken down is not by letting them kill each other, it is by putting them behind bars. Yeah. And that, uh, because I stood up for them a few times, I also have I did plenty of yeah. run-ins with the guards, which people don't know about, horrendous run-ins yeah. with certain people in the guards, and didn't toll, you're not, it's... This criticism is thrown at crime journalists all the time, but particularly Mm. from a certain element in our own business who had a problem. And it started, I could trace it back to the old Sunday Tribune. And there was a lot of arguments, believe me, behind the scenes amongst the executives in the newspapers. Mm. to say, you know, you're trying to sully our people by trying to diminish them by what the jobs they're doing. Uh, and inevitably, you had to yeah. talk to the guards and know the guards, and uh, like the same way. So I you would have had
0: guarded so sources, obviously. You could scarcely have done your job
1: absolutely without
0: yeah. them. Um, and perhaps even in the heads of those sources, there's a kind of an unspoken quid pro quo. Uh, I get, I can make sure Paul is briefed, and Paul then can, you know, a not say anything that's damaging or wrong, uh, mm-hmm. you know, would have set an investigation or whatever it is. Um, but the heart the Veronica Guerin case, it was me who broke the story about a corrupt cop
1: working with the Gilligan gang I broke that yeah. story now if it was a case that there was a quid pro quo uh, because that really hit the guards very mm. very hard now they caught the guy and pulled him behind bars yeah. ultimately but th- that was an example that completely belies the accusation that you're
0: a cop hack yeah yeah. and of course the guards have been, can be their own worst enemies sometimes I mean, oh, they're, they're, they're pen, the penalty points think oh my lord and they you know they um, Morris McCabe revelations. I, I was, I think, I may have mentioned to you before. I was one of the earliest guys to meet Morris McCabe. He, he he rang my office, and my colleague was talking to him. And said, you know, I want to speak to Connors and I have this uh, dossier, and I rang him back. And um, anyway, long story short, we met at a motorway service area in in uh, uh, Longford somewhere. I think it was, or might have been Moulin-Gar. and he had his. You know, we went, he we had his dossier, he was able to show it to me, and uh, a whole lot of people whose penalty points had been cancelled, uh, and yeah. often the people involved didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, for example, was a famous rugby player. Uh, I think the local desk sergeant must have been a fan and just cancelled it. But, but
1: th- I had th- penalty points taken off as well. I, I was not and Morrison Cave, the way he was treated, was horrendous. It's but true. I was thrown into the middle of the whole affair, principally because of, allegations that were proved to be completely unfounded by Gemma O'Doherty who your listeners would know yeah, about. Yeah. Also by Dave Taylor, the superintendent, who did, like if you read the, the disclosure tribunal report, I was cleared, I was accused of all kinds of maladies and yeah. terrible things I was supposed to have done that I didn't do. But I was cleared by the judge completely and vindicated. But the thing was that even Taylor, the judge found that Taylor mm. told lies about me. So I was like fair game in the middle of all of that. Yeah. And Morris McCabe, at the uh, Glad, I'm so glad that that man got his justice in the end because him he was treated. And that was an example, and I've studied this since in my Master's in, in Criminology, uh, policing Culture. That really, what happened to him really did exemplify yeah. a rotten
0: uh, occupational culture at the heart of a Gardaí culture. I, I had a conversation with Gemma O'Doherty at that time, and I, <laughs> it's hard to remember now, but at that time, Gemma O'Doherty was an investigative journalist well, which was, allegedly with, investigative with, with, with a little bit of credibility, yes. remarkably. Uh, she was you know, given
1: credibility once because she, she brought up a, a case. Like, if you talk to the people
0: whose cases she took up, yeah. It would be a very interesting podcast, that's yeah. all I'd say about it. Well, that. look, she, she's since exposed or has become as a, a tragic lunatic and not much more about her need be said. But I do recall the argument I had with her because she was, at that stage, she was writing I think, for the independence. She was determined to get me to say that it was Garlick corruption. And, uh, you know, I'm not on a, I'm not on the Gar <clears throat> side necessarily, but say, look, I honestly don't think that's what it is. It's an institutional culture of laziness, piss poor record keeping, universal sloppiness, um, uh, you know, to, which has you know, proceeded to an, a crazy extent. And then, in response to its exposure, an equally unhealthy uh, culture of of circling the wagons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guards have done a lot since then. Um, we had Nori O'Sullivan, who you know I met a few times. Obviously, you probably know as well. Uh, and then Drew Harris. But she was forced to resign.
1: Well, okay. No, 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 again, no, not like in the sense that she couldn't take it anymore. She was being attacked from all angles. Yeah. Now, I was very critical of her, but in the end, when she left, when she felt she had to go, it, she, it was unfair to her. The same as Francis Fitzgerald. Yeah. The same as uh, as as Alan Chatter. You know, all yeah. those people were since vindicated. This thing took on a life of its own. And who were the two men? Two of the two of the politicians who were leading the charge again. This is we can look mm-hmm. in back in twenty twenty two in hindsight, Mick Wallace and yeah. Claire Daly,
0: yeah, yeah, I know. and Ming I know.
1: Flanagan. Like you know, yeah. your listeners will be listening to taking themselves. And, and you know,
0: they, they've no. said that, they you know, it, just because a person is a, a you know can be a lunatic in some levels and can have perhaps have politics that you utterly disagree with, uh, and maybe even everything from you know manners to personal ethics that you don't approve of. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not right sometimes oh, no, but they, and, well,
1: they went to, uh, they, Like, trust me I've studied all of this yeah uh, and there is absolutely what you say is correct but when I was out in the front line on this I saw the stuff that they went on with uh, and it was basically they didn't they wanted to believe a certain narrative they mm. pushed a certain narrative that narrative was ultimately undermined a lot of the things they said the individual mm. things they said
0: yeah, uh, of course, um, nobody remembers those de- those details in no. hindsight, do they? No, um, not at all. So you know, in hindsight, you can say Alan Chatter um, certainly didn't get justice. Francis Fitzgerald didn't get justice. Uh, it also Noreen has, O'Sullivan, didn't Norrie O'Sullivan, O'Sullivan uh, and then you've Martin Callan. Uh, when Martin Callan was a difference, He was perhaps a diff- different get kind a of fish. So enter Drew Harris, um, an outsider, mm-hmm. um feels like a little bit of a different culture in there. What are your thoughts on that? Is he the right guy and I, I, how's I, he
1: doing? Well, I, 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 would. he has done a lot of good uh, but I think that it, it is much more nuanced than that. Uh, I was asked to do by Pat Kenny to do a sort of profile on him recently yeah. or about a month ago and I, he, he's a very dour, aloof character. Mm. Um, a classic sort of northern Protestant. Very straight as a die. Oh yeah. Uh, a man of great integrity. Uh, uh, I don't know the guy but I know what is what I know of him. But he doesn't mix with the other guards around him. They're, they're, I think that in, t- and I, mm. trust me, I, I, as policing is my sort of academic speciality. I think ultimately, I think a lot of the things that are happening now with Angara Siocana and the public and the community, I think is very damaging. Mm. I think that ultimately there is a new sort of structure being placed, a, a geographical structure, with divisions and regions, I think it is all going to, f- they're going to end up going back to the drawing board in about five so or six years. Just time. to
0: be clear on what you think they're getting wrong, is that just operational design, organizational design that they're getting wrong? One Are getting th- some of the ethos things wrong? Th- th- well, right? etho- yeah, absolutely. And, you know, b- there was a
1: horrible ethos. That, that ethos, that rotten culture, that's what mm. Morris McCabe exposed. Yes. That has been, as well as you can in any sort of cultural milieu like that, where everybody's close-knit together, policing in particular, um, that has been expunged to a large degree because you can't. If somebody has a complaint now, it has. They have to be listened to. Yeah. You don't sweep. That's what they did with Mars. They, they swept him away and didn't want to talk to him. I yeah. Didn't want to listen to the man. And he then got more and more bitter, and more and more isolated, and more and more upset. And then blew them up, blew them out of the water.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, that culture has been dealt. But there is another issue. Like policing is. Since its very inception, say in the early early eighteen hundreds, um, has been based on discretion. That is yeah. the police officer's power. Discretion. He has Drew Harris has basically uh, killed a lot of the discretion Ooh. to such an extent that if a cop stops you now. You might have a, you might have a very good logic, and he says, "I know this. Guy, I know. Can see this guy's honest, but you know what? I can't help you. I have to yeah. go,
0: and you must."
1: There has to there
0: has to be a little bit of play at the point where the rubber meets the road. But that's gone. Uh, you know, wh- wh- when a car tire touches the road, it, you know it's designed to flex. Mm. It's designed to move. It's designed to mold to meet the road surface. Mm. You couldn't have a solid steel wheel. It's uh, very good analogy. And, 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 and you know, again, when, when community guards meet the community, there has to be an element of common sense. They're, you know, it, it, not every time. Sometimes when they see a broken headlight. It's, Paul, you drive that thing straight home and don't let me see you out like that again or I'll do you. You know, it cannot be confiscate car, take him to the station every bloody time. There has to be an element of, of, of reasonableness, uh, reasonableness at the interface. There is a,
1: there is a, a case coming down the line uh, in the courts whereby I think Drew Harris is going to be, uh, the, the, it was published recently, whereby he's going to be called as a witness to explain his policy on discretion I believe mm. because there is an issue with discretion in the sense that and I worry about this I, th- I believe absolutely that the, the bond since he mm. took over now the vast majority of what he's done is positive oh yeah I'm, I'm, this is more nuanced what I'm trying to say that police and the community they keep talking about community policing. It's mm. all of bullshit a lot. Of <laughs> and it is a lot of bullshit. Oh, yeah. You hear a lot of nonsense. And, and Drew Harris comes out with as much nonsense as any of the other guys before. Well, since, so you know, is. he's, but, but what he's they say done the is, training. What, what they say that, um, uh, you know, the, the relationship between the communities and the police is fraying,
0: mm-hmm.
1: What Drew Harris has effectively done is he has introduced
0: the British policing system to Ireland. Yeah, which feels a little too stiff and Presbyterian um, for, for I, mean, I, I a chat with a good friend of mine is a fellow called Mark Prentice. He was businessman in Dublin, but he's an Ulster mm-hmm. man, and he, you know, he has a he, he owns a whiskey distillery up there, and you know, that's where he's, you know, that's where he's from. And I asked him what the difference between the cultures are between Northern Ireland and the Republic, and he said the Republic's a little bit more ish. It's a little bit more flexible. If we're meeting at nine in the morning. You're, you're not late until at least five past, whereas the Presbyterians up north, um, you know, everything has to be much more precise. So PSNI and I was
1: born out of
0: the peace process.
1: The PSNI and I were, are in the middle of two sectarian tribes. Mm. So policing, therefore, their policing model is completely different to here. Yeah. And when you try to project that onto the Irish scene, ultimately, it doesn't work. Yeah.
0: so he will have challenges uh, Drew Harris as he goes along um, and you know we'll keep his balanced scorecard uh, the likes of you I guess will do um, and you know I presume you're, you, you'll criticise him if you think he deserves it um, I, I, that's, that's that's what, what I do. do. Yeah, that's what you do. But <laughs> so, here, t- tell me. I'm running slightly time. Um, tell me a bit about where the criminal landscape is in Ireland now, because I give you my amateur impression. And you know, every, every few years there's a there's a new uh, Paul Williams book, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of you know tells you about the latest crowd of nutters who are in charge. But it does feel to me that you know if we go even post Veronica Guerin, if you say the Westies that era, um. It was still, they were still local crime gangs. These were a Dublin crime gang. Now, they might have been sourcing gear, internationally and forging connections. But then, you know, Ireland gets its first multinationally successful criminal gangs. M- maybe the... the um well I was thinking of the Kinnons. Now, I mean, only precedent in terms of Irish uh, and Irish gangs so prominent is probably the IRA back in the day and Well the IRA we bit,
1: called them the Raffia and that yeah, wasn't by accident the yeah, IRA brought organised crime but to Ireland but, but yeah they continued
0: in organised crime until not so very Well long ago. you know it's what they were good at they were a lot of them were professionals in in, in, in organized crime and subversion, um, but but they're a, a different case perhaps. But I, I was thinking about the Ends because they they're not even it's not even an Irish crime gang anymore, are they? I mean, they've an office in Ireland, but you know ones in Dubai. They're larger operations. There are you know European in scale, uh, and they are large even compared across a continent of five hundred million Europeans. Well, what I
1: said earlier about you know the billion euro industry that became the cocaine trade. Uh, it is mul- m- multiples of billions this vacuum and the, the Celtic tiger bred this. they were the parasites on the back of the Celtic tiger the criminals who came along to feed this habit the same way like Mexico has been completely and utterly corrupted yeah. by the use of cocaine in the United States so they're underneath the, the grill so to speak of the sewer um, organized crime and the, the level of murders I use the analogy the two analogies mm. I use in terms of organized crime is when you, know, when you see people starting to shoot each other it is the equivalent of you in your lovely garden of yours. If you see a rat, and maybe you might see two rats, mm. by the time you see the rat, rent kill will tell you you have an infestation problem. The same thing with, organize, with, with murders. You realize you have a problem uh, with organized crime when they start right. killing each other. That has been de- building steadily for over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, Christy Kennan, I started writing about Christy kennan 20-odd years ago. Mm. Um, and he was a big player in the 90s so they were building
0: these empires yeah. and they were D- becoming D- Jerry Hutch had a slight reputation I he was completely wrong but he was cultivating a reputation as an ordinary decent criminal uh, Jerry Hutch and I wrote a book about him two
1: years ago he used he, 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 still be pissed off and bitching about the book so that means I've done something right but he, he was a guy who gave the impression that he was o- ODC to the extent that he wasn't a ruthless bastard like some of these guys he wasn't mm-hmm. going around killing people now that that take that as it may, uh, and then he had, uh, he had retired. But the drug trade brought him back into the business, mm. or back into trouble because his nephews got involved with the Kinnan. Were indistinguishable uh, 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 in from each other. They were an, an intrinsic part of the Kinnan organization. And because of that, Jerry Hutch found himself in the in the thing he's involved in, and now currently waiting to trial in the special criminal court, uh, and the Kinnahan Hutch feud. How many the, murders in the feud? So far? But here's the thing: the, the, the guards have beaten them back. The guards have done a magnificent job. But the thing about it is, nothing was being done about these people, Conor. We mm-hmm. were very, very critical, and this is though disbelies as well the bullshit about me being pro cop. I was yeah. very, very critical for years. Uh, around the time of Noreen and Sullivan and before or uh, after her about the way they were dealing with organized crime Because they were th- there was so many cutbacks that they didn't have the resources to take them on and they weren't bothering mm. They were more worried about the pound shillings and pets And it was only when they brought slaughter onto the streets of Dublin yeah. that they were taken on in the spectacular way They were and that over 60 to 70 members of the Kinan organization are now currently behind bars the more of them are behind bars in the UK that was the way to deal with it. And the other analogy, apart from the rat analogy uh, that I use, is that the way to give you a picture of where organized crime is today, it is a bit like this beautiful garden you, uh, you have here. If you mm-hmm. don't keep, trim it and keep an eye on it, it grows wild. Yeah. You, the police, what the police are doing in the dr- with the dr- so-called drug war, it's a nonsense kind of drug yeah, war. Yeah. We're not winning any war. It's bullshit. And we're never going to win it. So mm-hmm. people are going to have to have a debate around sometime about, about what, how we deal with yeah. the drug crisis going forward. But if you don't cut the weeds back, it's like cutting the weeds back and maintaining maintaining the back. back. And And if they grow up too much, that's what the police will tell you. They will say, look, our job is maintenance rather than eradication because you will never eradicate it. It's like a free-flowing stream. You can't block it. If you block it, it will find roots because the thing is, it's all about Mm. economics. The the demand is there, so the supply will get true to the demand, which is the ordinary man and woman in the streets, down in the orchard, or
0: wherever else, pub having a few points and buy them So, so we cut the weeds in the garden, and we're having to appreciate, I think, that there's a few things that innocent little island Ireland, you know, quite enjoys not having to spend money on. And um, in in terms of defending the country, we need to spend money on guards to make sure that Kinnahans. And their ilk are cut down like weeds in the garden. That's not a one and done job that needs to be done every year. Fresh weeds, will but grow. they are in fairness, they are doing that. Yeah. The certain this, this drugs and organized crime bureau
1: that they have that its results speak for themselves. And, and here's the thing there are corrupt cops, well, of course, absolutely corrupt cops. And the guards have 12,000 odd, and um, you will they will always reflect society, but they are being, they are being uh, subsumed into the. Crime culture because of drug abuse, because of maybe a flaw in their personality or whatever. And they, that and is because a it has to be kept. It, yeah. That's part of the weed cutting in the garden. Yeah. That has to be kept alive. There was another, you were talking to me before about cars because you're yeah, you know, yeah, the cars. But what the car, the motor car, the, the, the high quality motor car is as much a symbol of criminality as anything else. And I, I, I can yeah. explain that. That a good way to loan cash. cash. But, mm. but that's what they've been doing for donkey's years. Uh, and I remember uh, many, many years ago, a uh, a senior cop who was involved in the drug investigation area. This is about fifteen years ago, and I was actually started targeting the used car salesman because mm. we knew they were laundering money for the mob. Yeah, and you spoke to me money. at that time. I, I, you probably you don't even remember,
0: but I, I get to say somebody in the pub afterwards. Hey, Paul, I was talking to Paul Williams. What's that about? Oh, I tapped the side of my nose. You know but you were i mean and i mean the, the smi and I were trying to they were talking
1: about it i remember using they, had had weed, they had weeds in their garden oh, too but and yeah but there was there were you know I, I know a very dear friend of mine who i buy all my cars and from years owen uh ready uh who was a very reputable decent guy and a brilliant car salesman i gives you a good deal a bribe bet you get you the best cars i remember him saying to me years ago i said owen oh, i'm covering this shit. i'm i've I've identified seven garages on uh, in the, the, the vicinity of the Long Mile Road which are all being run by criminals. Yeah. And he said, laughed and he said, yeah, look at some of the houses. And they all centered around Jim Mansfield who was a godfather of organized crime. Mm. And you had these showrooms stuffed full of Maseratis and Porsche yeah. and all of that. And, uh, and they, and Bentleys, they loved our Bentleys. This whole business, the cars were bringing in the drugs, then they were being sold but there was a way yeah. of laundering the cash but it was rotten to the core. But this senior cop I remember telling me around that time, because it was very high profile, what we were doing. And he said, another detective who knew him and was friendly with him, came to him one day with a car and said, he, he was dabbling in cars. That's one of the reasons why that you have that nexus yeah. between criminals and, and, and cops through the years, because there's a certain level of type of man, I don't understand them, mm. I think they're but... Th- who are completely mesmerized and completely fascinated and besotted by but cars they, 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 they,
0: you, you can't stop it. it's like trying to tell hydrogen not combined with oxygen if you if you have a, a, a cop who, who's you know susceptible to corruption and would fancy a bribe uh, and if on the other side of the equation you have a criminal with cash who but, could they bring the guards the, but they brought. The,
1: the, I know of those people who became corrupted to the car business and this guy a detective turned up to this other senior detective and said here's the car because he was dabbling in seven cars and the guy told me himself the senior cop He said, I walked around the car, lovely car, really good price. And he said, I looked at the plates. And I said, he he said to the cop, he said, are you mad? He says, why why, not? He said, that's a Lee Cullen Motors car. Lee Cullen, by the way, just for your listeners. We can name it. Absolutely. Absolutely. People will still see a a, a sticker on a car. They're not still being sold. But Lee Cullen was very close to the Mansfields. He was part of that network of. Drug dealers and money launderers.
0: These are the same Mansfields that include City Mansfield. West.
1: Yeah, absolutely, the, and same, the The son
0: is now um, absolutely in the quarter on foot of involvement uh, with the Kennedys. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: And I was writing this stuff fifteen years ago, and nobody was listening to me. But anyway, he said Lee Collin is a criminal. I'm not buying the car, and especially a cop, a senior cop. And he said to me after that, he said, "I twigged that guy. I yeah. watched that guy after." But here's the thing. I tracked... I went after Lee Cullen, for example, I made his life an absolute bleeding misery. There was another part, Another one of his associates were terrorizing the, the people who owned... Decent, decent people, the Malloys, owned Teleford. Mm. Uh, they're a reputable, decent, good yeah. company. Yeah, well-known as such. And good. they were being... These guys were burning them out of their business because they wouldn't... Because they were legitimate and the illegitimate car dealers were trying to burn them out of their business. The Malloys were doing their business and they were being harassed, and I was writing about it at the time. And I was getting very close. Everything went back to Mansfield, old Mansfield, Jim Mansfield, and I remember mm. being approached by a number of guards to say, would you lay off Lee Cullen, and I said, I will in my you-know-what. Huh. Uh, and this is another example, of if I was everyone's bitch, would I have done this? But also a very senior yeah. public relations consultant. <laughs> I rang me that. one day, and I remember where I was. I was sitting on a bus going to Punchestown with my solicitor, the Sunday word solicitor, Kieran Kelly. He just looked at me, and I lost the rag with this guy. Mm. I said, You're ringing me on behalf of a senior figure in one of the biggest organized crime networks in this country to tell me to stop writing about him? Are you for real? <laughs> and th- this was the but de- this was Mansfield's influence. Now, mm. to, to tell your listeners, to remind us, just in case you're worried that you're going to walk yourself into a libel action, mm. Lee Cullen is now doing a very long stretch in the United Kingdom for possession of firearms and drugs. So it sounds like he's that—that's a weed pulled up out of the garden. That was, but he was replaced by lots of other weeds because yeah. when the Kinnan Hutch few kicked off, what was the first thing the guards went after? They started the picabs started seizing dozens of luxury cars from all these bogey garages because yeah. the bogey garages were still operating and they still do operate. And today even, or yesterday, the Criminal Assets Bureau did a, a swoop on some criminal gang and took a pile of uh, luxury cars. My net point is that, I know you, this is your passion and your interest in life, uh-huh. but like the car is very much a part of all of that.
0: Yeah. Well, as part of the bling, I'm not, I'm
1: I'm not libeling cars or besmirching the good reputation of cars everywhere. I hope to forgive me. But the point of it is that, you know, the car for me has always been a symbol, especially these dodgy garages of organized crime. And the last thing I'll say to you about is that I mentioned my friend already, already said to me many years ago when I was doing this, I was asking questions about these guys because everybody in the the business knew who these guys were. And he and another used car salesman said to me on different occasions. He said, "You know what? We're selling cars. The best, the best of cars. We have a really good business going. Neither of us are millionaires. Yeah. And so they're not. But some of the people involved in this, in the, in the, in the sale of cars for money laundering purposes, were living in houses, my friend, that were worth two or three million at the height of the Celtic Tiger. All close to James Mansfield."
0: Yeah, dear, oh dear. Well, do you know what I I I have I've resolved now, I've got to go out to my Skoda Estate uh diesel and I've got to pimp it out in and uh, in, in gangster bling. Um, i be B- I have my gangster bling
1: BMW, uh that's serves me well, but uh right,
0: so that's more gangstery than mine. And um, so so what next, Paul? I, I mean I know you've done loads of things. There are T V documentaries, there's there's books that come out regularly. Did you, do mean, you, stint news talk, new, you did a stint with news. You did stint news talk, presented some horrendous shows.
1: Horrendous. Orders it horrendous, Jesus Christ. Christ, I always used to say to myself after the first show, what in the name of Christ have I got myself into? Because I was told just to say whichever you want to say, but it was to get up in the morning, so it was know. killing me. Starting 4 with, o'clock in the morning. Starting your day at stupid o'clock in the morning. At stupid o'clock and every day you felt like you were jet lagged. And then yeah. you go to the pub, you're like an excited, So you'd be very depressed on the Monday morning. But by Friday I was bouncing on my skin like a kid getting out of school. And then, but I go down to the pub, meet me mates. I have a snooze in the afternoon. Go down, and meet me mates in the pub around the eight o'clock. Have a few points, and by about half nine, I'm falling asleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it becomes a lifestyle. So I, that, I, that, one, one, one of the guys, I one of the people down.
0: I spoke to on the podcast is Ivan Yates, and uh, he, oh, he's he, a legend. He's terrific, and he was great fun to chat to. But he was saying he did he did the morning stint in News and eventually, no matter how much more money they wanted to throw at him, he just had to give it up because he said, it, it, "You know, it, it, it just that that lifestyle of permanent jet lag." So, here, what, what what next for you? Still putting on weeds? With, I, do you, I I I write
1: for the Irish Independent. Hmm. Um, I don't do the, the the blue light chasing stuff anymore because you like you grow out of that. Yeah. Um, but I do a lot of stuff for the Irish Independent. Uh, I also written I wrote, wrote about Clash and Gilligan a year before The Monk. I've, I've about four or five books planned. Uh, I'm I'm working on a uh, sort of an international. Just waiting. I'm working with. Uh, I don't know. I haven't made a decision which company would do it yet. But I have a definite plan to turn the the Elaine O'Hara book into, into a, a dramatic podcast. Yeah, you were telling um, me about that. I've I, a negotiation going on in terms of movie rights for one of my books, my more my more one of my more recent books. Um, I'm also, you know, I I I think it's coming to the stage now at my age that you know it's time to move on to other things maybe outside the journalistic yeah. industry like uh,
0: maybe a bit of consultancy maybe I've got involved in a. wouldn't, in wouldn't a it be wouldn't it be ironic if you were eventually shot dead by, by an angry publisher <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know my wife tried to be to the garage used to say that years ago by the way to say Jesus you know where are the you Paul but if anyone's going to kill each other yeah there you <laughs> go um, well look you're, you're, you're brilliant to come and talk to me uh, and uh, we're, we're going to meet again we'll meet For a pint, I'm sure we'll run into each other. I owe you a pint. I'm doing
1: this now, so you're going to buy it.
0: Ah, well, there you go. That's it. it. Yeah, it has to be done. Um, So we'll go off and plan that. Um, Edison, thanks uh, to people for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And Paul Williams, thank you very much. Thank you, Conor. By the way, the best of luck with your future career yourself.
1: This is a great idea.
0: There you go. That's crime reporter and writer Paul Williams. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. Please check out previous episodes where you'll find chats with people like Shane Ross, Teresa Mannion, Ivan Yates, Dermot Bannon, George Hook, and others. It's all there on SeniorTimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner, and you can email me at conorfaulkner at gmail.com. Until next time, drive safely, live happily, and come back and see us again. Sponsored by Expressway. With MyExpressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.